Welcome to Wide-Mindedness with Victoria Ball, the podcast in which I interview expert guests who want to join me in celebrating that life is not black and white. Our society is increasingly divided, and the us-versus-them mentality seems to dominate our conversations and relationships with others. I believe that life is much richer when we widen our minds to consider multiple opinions and perspectives. So challenge your assumptions and let's become truly wide-minded together. Tahir Shah is a prolific best-selling author and filmmaker. His 30-year career has produced more than 40 highly acclaimed works of fiction and non-fiction, as well as numerous documentaries and screenplays and a massive body of journalism, scholarly articles and photography. Describing himself as an enthusiast and adventurer, Tahir has spent his professional life searching for the hidden underbelly of lands through which he travels. In doing so, he often uncovers layers of life that most other writers hardly even realise exist. With a worldwide following, Tahir's work has been translated into more than 30 languages in hundreds of editions. His documentaries have been screened on National Geographic TV, the History Channel, Channel 4, and in cinemas the world over. The son of the writer and thinker Idris Shah, Tahir was born into a prominent Anglo-Afghan family and seeks to bridge east with west through his work. Passionate about the changing face of publishing, he established his own media business, Secretum Mundi Limited, which represents all his projects. Hello Tahir, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be with you. Your father was the writer and thinker Idris Shah, and you were born into an ancient and prominent Afghan family and grew up in Baden-Powell's Georgian mansion in the British countryside. It all sounds magical. Can you tell me about your childhood? When I was a kid, I thought um, what I was going through and what I experienced was normal. When I was a tiny baby, my twin sister and I and our older sister were taken to live in an incredibly beautiful Georgian house. With the house came, you know, an enormous amount of land and outbuildings. And um, I was sent to a prep school when I was eight. And at the prep school, they always went on about this guy, Baden-Powell, Baden-Powell, and because he had been a student there and he had, as everyone knows, started the Boy Scouts. And I remember saying to my dad, um, Baba, who was this Baden-Powell? My father said, oh, totally unimportant, stupid English guy or whatever. And then he never bothered to tell us that Baden-Powell had grown up at Langton House where we were growing up. And mm-hmm. he grew up playing in the same Bluebell Woods at the house that we did. And that was apparently where he got his love of nature and forestry. And um, and he, he had the same bedroom as me. So I look back mm-hmm. at it now and I think, gosh, I kind of lived another another kind of version of Baden-Powell's life, a century and a half or whatever it was mm. later. But as you said, my father came from Afghanistan through kind of twists and turns, and he could never take us there. So he was adamant that the house would be de- decorated inside um, from top to toe. 
as a kind of Afghan uh, mm. durbar or sort of homestead. So there were Afghan rugs, obviously, Afghan furniture and suits of armor from Afghanistan and zillions and zillions of swords, which have been mm. owned by, by our ancestors. Your, your parents were friends with incredible people too. Nobel laureate Doris Lessing, the poet Robert Graves, but also just novelists, designers, actors, inventors. What effect did it have on you as a young boy to be surrounded by this diverse group of very prominent people? Well, there were some incredibly well-known people who used to drop by. and But I must say, and equally important to us, and really more important, were the people who weren't, weren't famous or important or, you know, celebrated. But our dad always had this thing that you have to be surrounded in your life by a full spectrum of people, ideas, thinking, food, all kinds of stuff. What I love about looking back at our our lives at Langton House in the kind of early 70s, really, in 70s, was that anyone who was there, whether they were famous or not famous or whoever they were, they kind of all... um, kind of left their 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 lives, their outside lives at the door, almost like they hung them up on a hook. So, mm-hmm. for example, you mentioned um, our great friend, family friend, Doris Lessing. I always thought Doris, who was an incredibly close family friend, and she'd come all the time. I always thought Doris Lessing was just a little old lady who would <laughs> be found in the herb garden pressing herbs. And it was only years later when I had to study one of her school books at um, at school, I, I realized, wow, she's really well known. And I remember I told my my school teacher for, for English that, yeah, Doris was over at the house this weekend and I told her that, um, or I asked her to explain the book to me. And I remember the teacher got really enraged and he said, how dare you, you're trying to you're trying to make a mockery of this class because obviously he didn't believe it. And someone, I I've mentioned a lot in this new book that I've written about writing um, called The Reason to Write is uh, J.D. Salinger, the American novelist, Mm. who was a recluse, famous recluse, but he was um, preoccupied in many ways with my father and loved my father's writing. And he would drop in, you know, from time to time. And we just, we didn't have any inkling who he was or we had never obviously heard of Catherine the Rye when we were little children. And mm. I love the fact that, you know, this man that uh, was a recluse from, you know, his entire life, would he just be a regular guest, you know, someone who'd turn mm. up and, um, yeah, just like anyone else. Look, again, we were brought up not to be interested if someone was famous or not, not to... Um, not to have anything to do with that. And my father, you know, um, would rail, rant and rail on and on about this cult of celebrity in the West. He would, um, uh, yeah, he would always advise us, don't care about whether someone's famous, care about, you know, whether they're a good person or not. And as an adult and a parent, does that learning from other people carry on and extend into your adult life? It's incredibly important to me. And uh, um, in this book that I've written about writing Mm. recently, uh, I've talked about what I call kind of uh, teaching people. And they're heroes that you have um, or that I have as a writer, but heroes that anyone could have for any part of their life. 
And in my life, you know, my, my teaching people are people like Richard Francis Burton, the great writer and polymath, and mm. also people that no one else would have ever heard of, which, who I might have stumbled on in the middle of the night on a Wikipedia page that mm. nobody else has really um, uh, championed at all. But we were always raised, and this is what I've tried to do with my two children, we were raised to try to find extraordinary and interesting facets in everyone we meet. And I remember um, being shown the work of Studs Terkel, and he's just popped into my head. He did these so-called oral histories in, you know, after the war, and he lived for a very long time, and he was an American. And I've always been fascinated by these oral histories, just so-called ordinary people just talking about mm. their lives. I'm mm. kind of preoccupied by this because I think um, I'm, I'm really dead. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm dead set against this cult of, of celebrity mm. pr pretty much because I've been brought up to be, but I love just hearing um, just, you know, a man in the street or a woman, um, just whoever telling about incidents that happened in their life. I think those are the greatest storytellers rather than uh, celebrities who are often, you know, very damaged. Can you just explain to listeners how what I would call a very wide-minded approach has structured your career and your, your journey to where you are now? I'm totally obsessed with what I call zigzag. If I, I don't hate many things, but I hate straight paths. And I always think that a straight road never led to anywhere worth going to. And mm. in the same way, a zigzag route um, leads you to treasures and discoveries mm. and all kinds of extraordinary things. As a kid, and even now, I was profoundly dyslexic. But growing mm. up in the 70s, they just thought I was slow and dim mm. and um, my two sisters were uh, so much sharper and brighter and I was a slow learner and I found it really hard to grasp things, particularly ideas and God in sports, like I could never catch a ball and that sort of thing. And I see that's all um, part of my kind of dyslexicness. So my parents um, thought, yeah, maybe I should become a diplomat. And then they started encouraging me to do things that I was interested in. And okay, after, um, after boarding school, I remember I was, I was, had turned, had just turned 18 and over breakfast one day, uh, and I had no plans and no one knew what I'd do. And everyone mm. was, um, uh, putting their heads in their hands. And I remember at breakfast one day, my dad heard me say, gosh, I'm interested in African dictatorships. I think some terrible African dictator had done something newsworthy and it was all over the front pages mm -hmm. of the newspapers that morning. And my father said, go to Africa and I will pay for you to do a university degree in Africa on African dictatorships. And he said, I expect you to be there within a week or two. So mm -hmm. you better get cracking. And that was really the beginning of my life as I see it. I ended up going to Kenya, which was, you know, a very benign uh, dictatorship at the time. And 
on the weekends, I would, I, I studied at an American university there, a tiny one. And on the weekends, I would zigzag across Africa or around uh, East Africa and then wider and wider journeys. And I would explore and learn things and meet people. And that was really the beginning of my writing life. And later, I began to write these things down and make books and TV documentaries about kind of looking for the the hidden underbelly of the lands through which I travelled. You pride yourself on being unconventional and have said that society churns out cookie-cutter people who live cookie-cutter lives. Can you explain that to me? This is something that gets me worked up because I celebrate two things, maybe. One is being zigzag and the other is being original. So in bringing up my kids, Ariane and Timor, who are in their kind of late teens now, I tell them, and I've told them since day one, that I'm not expecting them to be top of the class or to, um, you know, uh, to outshine everyone else in memorizing stuff and, um, you know, learning by rote. I tell them, please, 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 Okay, be zigzag, but be original. Come up with things that nobody else has come up with. Don't just uh, churn out the same essay that everybody else has or the same art assignment or whatever, because you know it'll get you a good grade. And I'm very proud of them because um, they've really taken that approach to heart. And they've seen, I think, that um, operating in this kind of free form approach to life um, trawls up far more interesting experiences you know mm. well when when your children were small you left life in London to live in Dar Khalifa which you've called a gin-filled mansion in the middle of a Casablanca shanty town you've written about this in your book The Caliph's House how did you and your family navigate such a relocation to an unfamiliar country and culture with two young children in tow yeah, and the kids were tiny. My son Timur was six months old and my daughter Ariane was like uh, almost three. And we were living in the East End in a tiny little house in Whitechapel. And I kept thinking back to my childhood at Langton House where wacky people would turn up the whole time and all kinds of goings on happened. I remember thinking, I am... Um, I'm failing these children. I kept thinking back to my childhood, going from Langton House quite often by car to Morocco, and that it was everything that England wasn't. It was culturally diverse and extraordinary and warm and not grey and abundant and magnificent. And so I said to my wife, Rachna, um, I remember getting on a chair and my head was almost touching the ceiling and I just thrust my arms up in the air and I shouted, we're leaving for Morocco. We're going to go and live in Morocco. And she said, fabulous. Do you really think we can afford Monaco? And I was like, no, no, not Monaco, Morocco. We were offered a mansion and it turned out that it was in the middle of a shantytown, a huge shantytown in Casablanca. And supposedly... The house that I had bought um, and dragged us to was infested from the rafters down to the the basements with gin, genie, genoon, as they call them in Morocco. 
And so the first thing we had to do was to have a full-on, fully loaded exorcism. And I wrote about it, as you say, in my book, The Caliph's House. I'm loving my conversation with Tahir, and I hope you are too. If you are, please sign up on Instagram and Facebook at Widemindedness Victoria Ball to get more great content. You can also subscribe to the monthly newsletter at victoria-ball.com. And please remember to tell people about this podcast. If you enjoy it, help them find it too. That's the way that we can spread this wide-mindedness message to everyone around us. Now, back to Tahir. It reminds me so much of that saying of Mark Twain, which is that travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry and narrow-mindedness. Mark Twain is such a hero of mine. <laughs> I think the zigzag original approach to life that I and people like Mark Twain um, have championed, I think this is a life that everybody should be following. It's far more interesting than, um, you know, getting the cookie-cutter life that so many of my friends signed up for a memory of uh, a Monday morning, eight o'clock in the morning, being at Heathrow Airport and going down to uh, the Heathrow Express train. And I was standing there along with about six kit bags, which were kind of rotting and disintegrating. They were filled with my expedition equipment. And I had just arrived from Ethiopia, where I'd spent two months looking for King Solomon's gold mines. And I looked up and down the platform and there were all those kind of Euro bankers with their perfect haircuts and smart um, suits. And they all looked at me as if I was some wretched, you know, disgusting creature. And I thought, you you bastards, because Mm. I'm the guy who's living a full spectrum life. I'm out of my comfort zone. I'm I'm living and you're Mm. not. You've been a champion of what you've called the East-West Bridge. Can you explain what that is and and why it's important? I come from this family where we're a mixture of East and West. We are um, genetically and um, culturally and in all kinds of other ways. Although I was brought up in England, um, I'm uh, my ancestral background is, you know, a big mixture of British and Afghan and Parsi, Indian, all kinds of stuff. It's a big human stew. Um, and I feel that people like me have this duty, this responsibility, whether they acknowledge it or not. And the duty is to explain one to the other. And so I believe it's my duty to explain the West to the East and the East to the West and do the same for the North and the South and the West and the, you know, you mm. get my point. Mm. To to be this bridge, I see that in our world, um, there are these clusters of humanity, of culture, and all too often they are isolated from one another. They tell each other that, that, that they're different. And gosh, sure, they're a bit different, and that's wonderful, and we should celebrate that. But at the same time, they're all the same. You know, and something that I've loved and I know uh, you have embraced with your interest in the golden age of the Arab world. Um, mm-hmm. Something that I'm so interested in is um, the legacy of Arab science, which mm-hmm. made the Renaissance possible. I'm so fascinated that these Arab polymaths, mathematicians and um, all kinds of other people mm-hmm. from, you know, the golden age, that mm-hmm. they kickstarted all kinds of extraordinary um, happenings within Europe. And those, you know, those fueled 
um, other adventures further afield. Let's get on to your writing because you are such a prolific author. And it's been my pleasure and honour to read the proof of your latest book, The Reasons to Write, an author's masterclass. Let's just start by asking what prompted you to write it. I've been writing books for, I guess, like 25 years or more, maybe even 30. And in that time, I've been published by, you know, Random House and Feidenfeld and Nicholson, John Murray, all the, a lot of the main publishers. Um, it was only about eight years ago that I kind of had a eureka moment. And my eureka moment was that I would never again, if I could help it, be published by um, a conventional publisher. Instead, I would publish work myself, but far more importantly than any of that, I would write whatever I wanted. And that is fundamental to everything I do, particularly with writing. Um, so a year or so ago, it came into my head that I wanted to explain to you know, readers of my books, but more importantly, to writers who are trying to break in um, what I see as important and what is not important. And the reason uh, I've called the book, as I have, The Reason to Write, comes back to the American writer, J.D. Salinger. When I was six years old, J.D. Salinger turned up at the house, as he used to do, as I said, and we were all told to be on our best behavior and we were put in neat little outfits. And when he left, I said to my father, Baba, um, who was that man? And my father said, he is a very important writer. And I said, why does he write, Baba? And my father looked at me, and even though I was six, he never talked down to children, ever. He looked at me mm -hmm. very sternly, and he said, J.D. Salinger, or Mr. Salinger, writes, because if he doesn't, he will turn to stone. And for me, that's the reason I've called the book The Reason to Write. And what I've seen is there are two kinds of writers, maybe more, but the kind of writer that interests me are, or, or creative people that interest me are those who have to do, they have to write books or create art or sculpt or do whatever because it's inside them. It's not to make a buck to pay the electricity bill or whatever. It's this it's this drive that I always saw in people like um, our great friend Doris Lessing and uh, another family friend, Robert Graves, the classicist as well. These are people who can't help themselves. It's like a, it's almost like a mania. Um, mm. And I've always been, I've always been drawn to that. One of my favorite lines in your new book is, and I quote, it's dreamers like me whose eyes are open widest of all. Can you explain what you mean by that? I get these messages mostly from publishers saying, yeah, you creative people, you're, um, uh, you need us, you know, and they never say uh, we need you. And at the beginning of the book, I've put a quote from Doris Lessing and Doris has said, you know, in that quote, that long quote, that she makes it possible for all the publishers to have their lunches, for the agents, for the mm. distributors, for the printers, for everyone. You know, it's people like her. And I would say it's dreamers like Doris Lessing and J.D. Salinger and me in a much more limited and humble way who see the world in an inside-out, back-to-front kind of way, like 
Our ancestors would have seen it. Finally, in a couple of lines, I wanted to ask you if this idea of wide-mindedness did resonate with you, and if so, why? Wide-mindedness, what I what I take from that is what I call full-spectrumness. I am totally into appreciating a full spectrum of the world around us, of experiences, of people, of restaurants, of um, of every possible uh, experience. And to me, that's, you know, that's the basis of the human experience. And that's what I would call wide-mindedness. Tahir Shah, thank you so much for joining me today. I have loved our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wide Mindedness with Victoria Ball. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please let others learn about it by rating, reviewing and subscribing. For more great wide-minded content, follow me at Wide Mindedness Victoria Ball on Facebook and Instagram and sign up to the monthly newsletter at victoria-ball.com.